Would you grab your Bibles and turn to John 14, and we'll read our text for this morning. John 14. We're going to read all the way through 31. You don't know this yet, but we're not going to finish. John 14, 25. So these things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let your heart not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has no claim on me. But I do as my Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. So I've entitled uh, the talk today, Some Things to Leave You With, as I Step to the cross. You may have been, as I was for a long time, I thought that John 13 through 17 all took place in the upper room. It doesn't. Um, They step out of the room at the end of chapter 4, and they are no doubt headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. But the question comes, John 15, 16, and 17, where do they take place? Do they happen as they're walking along to the Garden of Gethsemane? Do they stop somewhere else in the city? And Jesus does part some of that, and then more of it in the garden, or all of it, uh, 15 through 17, in the garden. We just don't know, but I love what it shows us. And it shows us what Jesus had practiced with them for three years now, and it's this. And it's something every one of us in the room this morning needs. From myself to everybody else, if you are a follower of Jesus, we need what Jesus has practiced, and that's this, life-on-life discipleship. So we are to pursue God ourselves, obviously, but we are to pursue God together. We need one another. We need to learn from one another. And so he has practiced with them life-on-life discipleship. Again, look at 31, the very end of it. He says, rise, let us go from here. And so there are Somewhere in Jerusalem, in a, in a room, it's called the upper room, and they now leave that, and they begin to go, and uh, in a couple of weeks we'll, we'll be in John chapter 15, and, and so somewhere that begins. So for all of us, just a, a quick reminder to us of the necessity that we need in our faith to learn together, to be taught, to, to listen, to be able to ask questions and to be in groups is absolutely, vitally important. Christ modeled this, that as you go, as you live, we have life-on-life encounters with one another. So as we frame this, Jesus, in verse 25, communicates to them the first part of that. He says, or all of that, verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you, while I am still with you. And so let's talk about that just for a moment. 
the 11, more than anybody in the history of the world, had such a unique privilege. And again, we've talked about it in these days, but I just want to remind us, it's just unfathomable to us what it must have been like to be with Jesus day in and day out for three years. Um, And so just some of those days were probably just common days. They were traveling to places. He's talking with them. He's sharing with them. They're doing regular life stuff. And then there's some days that is just incredibly overwhelming where he has raised someone from the dead or he has healed someone. And, And it must have been astounding for them to live in light of his presence on a daily basis and just experience these things. And so right before they leave the upper room, he shares with them, I have spoken these things to you while I am still with you, indicating to them that there's going to be a little bit of shift of things. And when we get to chapter 15, some of the deepest things and most significant things that have ever been said on this planet are contained in John 15. This is where he says, abide in me about nine times. And he will call us and remind us of the importance of that and of loving him and the commandments. But what a privilege they have to live in his presence and to be given his promises. So I want to talk about that just for a moment, and then we'll um, get deeper into our time today. It's important for Christ to have one more face-to-face instruction with these men. It is about to get incredibly chaotic in a couple of hours. They will be present when Judas comes, plants a kiss on Jesus' cheek, They will watch Jesus be bound. They will watch Jesus be carried away. They will scatter. Throughout the weekend, they will hear what happens to Jesus. In the hours to come, Jesus will be blindfolded. He will be punched in the face. They will put a cane in his hand, in a sense. They will hit him on the head, driving the thorns that were there deeper into his scalp. They will pluck out his beard parts of his beard they will spit in his face they will mock him he will be lied about he will be betrayed and they will hear of these things and it will rock their world this one that they've seen be so mighty and powerful and tender and loving and compassionate they will hear about how he had been treated we do know that it seems to be that john seems to be the only one at the cross John will be there all day with Jesus' earthly mother Mary beholding Christ on the cross. And so for these men, it is about to really drastically change. And so he is equipping them not only for the hours ahead, but for the rest of their lives with words that are really deeply going to matter and help them with what is going to happen and take place. And I've often wondered for them, did they after... After a day of great miracles, just healing and casting out demons all day. And they're camped somewhere in Israel. And by the firelight, are they laying down around the fire, keeping warm? And did they look across at him laying near them and just almost pinch themselves? And just think, what in the, what in the world has come of my life? That I am with this one who works wonders. 
that when he speaks and he proclaims, people are just in awe of the things and they say, nobody has ever spoken like this ever in Israel. And so here are these men on this last night and Jesus reminding them that he has given them two of the greatest things that can be given. We have these things as well. But they had them in a unique way. They had been given Christ's very presence. They had lived in that presence. They had known Him up close and personal. And as He was with them in, and they were in His presence, He gave them His great promises. He gave them the very words of the Father so that they would know how to live their lives. And I want to point out this morning how very significant Christ's response here in the upper room. This is a night of great stress. We know in chapter 13, he's troubled. We're learning in chapter 12, he is troubled. He knows what he's about to drink. He knows the cup that he's about to take. And on this night, by the way, he is not going to sleep again. He will be up for the remainder of the night. And he doesn't say, hey man, can y'all lighten my load? Can you quit asking me questions? When I've told you this stuff over and over, he doesn't take a nap. Note what Christ does. He spends time investing in these men. And what that says to you and I this morning is that you and I should never, ever in our lives ever communicate, ever think that Jesus is not personable. That He's not willing to take the time to be with us in our time of need when maybe we lack understanding to continue to pour His heart out to you and I. He is willing to take the time. So here He is. He doesn't take a nap. He doesn't get away. He doesn't hide. He remains with them, gives His presence, and continues to speak with Him. With them. He has all the time that you and I ever need. He is willing. We are invited to come. So we are given, they were given, this great promise of Christ's coming. Now He's come. They've had His presence. And now they've had the privilege of His Word. And so before they leave the upper room and begin to, hit high, begin to go, sorry, begin to go in the direction of the Garden of Gethsemane, He gives them six promises. And because I told you earlier, we're just going to deal with two of them today. And so we got a lot of stuff to talk about. And so let's look at the first one. Six promises. Some words before they go. And here's the first promise. Verse 26. It is the promise of the Holy Spirit or the great helper of our faith. Read with me again verse 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we've got to connect these words from Christ about the Holy Spirit's role back to what we've read all the way back in John chapter 6, back to John chapter 2, but really also specifically in John chapter 13 and John chapter 14. All of these things that He has been saying to them, He's telling them, listen, You are not going to remember all these things, but I want you to know of this reality is that everything that I've said to you tonight, there is one who's going to come and he's going to help you to remember every single thing that I have taught you and that is needed to be known. 
And these things need to be, men, at the forefront of your lives. They will not be able to remember them all. We have these words on a page in ink, black or red, depending on the kind of Bible that you have. You have them, we have them on a tablet. We have them on our phone this morning. And we know this. We can't even remember these words. We've had many, many years to learn them. So on this night, there's no way they're going to remember all of this incredible things that Jesus is pouring out with them. But he gives them this great truth. You're not going to remember all this, but I want you to know that there's one who's going to come and he's going to help you to remember all of this. They will need help in that. You and I need help to remember these important things from Jesus. So look at the first part of 26. But the helper, the Holy Spirit. Again, this word is in Greek, it's called, it's called the paraclete, and it means this, it's someone who comes alongside to walk with you, to comfort, to be a counselor, to be beside, um, to help us. And so earlier Jesus said the Spirit will be with us, and He would be in us. And so the Holy Spirit is this great promise that Jesus gives, who will come from the Father in the name of Jesus to be with us and to be in us. Now let me point out the sending nature of the Trinity. We know this from Christ, is that Christ all through, beginning in John chapter 5, communicated over and over that the Father has sent me to you to reveal the Father. And so one of the things that the Father did was to send Jesus here to reveal the glory of God to us. So Jesus said that in John 5, 43. I have come in my Father's name. In John 6, 29, He says, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He, the Father, has sent. Now Jesus says that there's going to be another sending of God, and that's going to be the sending of the Holy Spirit. So fourteen twenty six, right there. But the Helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. We know in Matthew 28, now who is sent? We are sent. We are sent in the power of God, Spirit residing in us to go to the nations, to take the gospel to people. And as we go, being sent by the Lord, what will the Spirit do? So right now in this room, right here, The Spirit is present. We are gathered in in His name. His activity this morning is to keep you awake. It's not my job to keep you awake. Hello? Okay. It's not my job to keep you awake. His job, my job is to proclaim. It's my responsibility to proclaim the words that Jesus said. And in this room this morning, this is what's going to take place. If we will surrender. The Spirit's going to do two things in this room this morning. He will teach us in regard to God's nature in the area of all things. And then He will also in the room this morning bring to our remembrance things that we have already learned, embraced, we've put in our head, and we have put into our life. Every day of our lives, we need this important activity of the Spirit to be at work in our lives. Evidence. I will leave my office a couple of times a week 
and walk to some place on this campus. And when I get there, I will go, why did I come here? I will have a hard time. We do this in our house, do we not? We're like, okay, i got to go to the kitchen. We get into the kitchen. We get into the kitchen. And we don't remember why we needed to go to the kitchen. We cannot, we, watch, we can't even remember why we've walked 30 feet. So how much do we need the Spirit to be at work in our lives in regard to areas of marriage, of parenting, of financial integrity, of personal integrity, of work ethic, of discipline and reading the Word, on and on it goes. We need the Spirit teaching us and reminding us of the things that are ultimate in regard to God's heart and that His heart is near and dear to. So let's talk about those just for a moment. He is the teacher. Note this, never skip over any word in the Bible. He is the teacher, Jesus says, of all things. I think this all things there is in regard to all things in regard to the Scripture. But sometimes that is also all things in regard to things that we, we have learned. You know, over time, man has learned more things that God has done. We have discovered more things like about the, the brain and the body and about nature and about a number of things. And so, so through the years, God, through revelation, has given insight to us. But I think the main point is, is that He guides us into all things in regard to truth. God is about truth. The world is about lies. Satan is about that as well. So the great role this morning right now in this room as the Spirit wants to guide you and I deeper and more intimate into all things that are connected to God. And so he, Jesus just tells them, men, in case, you, I just want you to know this, you are not going to remember all of these things that I'm telling you. But there is a great helper who will be sent in my holy name. And when he comes, he's going to help you process remembering the important things that I've shared with you tonight. And if we, you and I could remember everything, we would be a bit more omniscient. But we cannot do that. So we need great help. I love this reality. My favorite section of the entire Bible is John 13 through 17 that we are walking through now. I love all of the Bible, but I, I just, the, 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 these chapters have deeply impacted um, my Christian life for all of these years. And it's amazing. So Jesus just is, we, we've been able to study this. If you've been a Christian for a while and you've gone to church, you've studied John 13 through 17. You've read it multiple, multiple times. How do we have it this morning? How, how, why are we able to study it this morning? Because all these years later, Jesus, Jesus spoke them one night. Chaos ensued, Pentecost came, and the Spirit began to work and it began to bring remembrance. And then one day, decades later, by the way, John wrote the Gospel of John toward the end of the first century. The Spirit led John to write, and watch this, orderly remember everything from all those decades before, indicating the supernatural work of the Spirit in the writing of the Scripture 
and why this is important for us. In some ways, sometimes we have let the Holy Spirit be the forgotten person of the Trinity, and He should not be. We should value the Spirit. Listen to the great role of the Holy Spirit. He will bring, Jesus said, He will teach us, our teacher, our great teacher, all things. So the Holy Spirit becomes this great awakener and definer and clarifier of the truth. And when you and I look around at our world today, we desperately live in a time where we need the Holy Spirit's work. Big time inside the church with God's people. Teaching the church. We need His teaching ability, His teaching power to fall upon the people of God in a mighty way. So that we would be taught to discern. So that we would be taught to critically think. When we hear things and, and our ear goes, okay, that doesn't cling right. It just doesn't sound right. And we go to the Scripture and the Scripture teaches us and the Spirit teaches us and shows us, no, that's not true. Sounds good, but it's really humanistic and it's man-centered. It has nothing to do with Jesus. And we live in a day where His teaching is so desperately needed in the church. We do not, we, have we not had enough of man's thoughts and perspective on things? We need the Spirit to clarify and to teach us the things that we need to do and know. Secondly, with that, not only is He the, a teacher of all things, but He will bring to remembrance Jesus' words. I want you to go back to John 12 just for a second. We're going to kind of look at a couple of verses here that are near... This, John 12, verse 16. This is after the triumphal entry, that significant day and that significant moment. John 12, 16 says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, that's when He ascended and exalted, and He was glorified, then they remembered these things that had been written about Him and had been done to him. Who did that work? John 12, 16, the Holy Spirit did. They would remember the Old Testament passages and stories that told them about the coming of Christ. Then they would remember the things done to Christ. They would remember the things that Christ said. And so the Spirit would do that work. He will bring to remembrance all that I have said. There were no recording devices on that day. So the Holy Spirit would be the unique one to remind them of the words of Jesus. Now go to John 17, just a couple chapters over. John 17, verse 8. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So these words, the Spirit would bring again here. Jesus saying, the Spirit will do this work, bringing to your remembrance. Now let me make a really practical point here. Can you remember something that you've not put in your head? Not really, right? So, if we never read the Scripture... 
We never pursue to know God through the Scripture. It's going to be very hard to recall and remember things. But when we have read things and we have studied them and we have been disciplined and we have written them on our heart, we have put them in our mind, we have memorized them, we have learned them, we have read them, in, in a moment, we all can relate to this, in a moment, is there not moments of our lives where maybe we have forgotten something in a passage, a story, something from the Bible pops into our head that is relevant in that moment? This, who does that? Is that our supernatural brain power no that is the holy spirit at work recalling to our minds truth that we have put in our lives therefore another practical point we must immerse ourselves in the scripture for we will remember what we have studied and what we have learned now i wholeheartedly affirm and believe this morning that the Spirit can put a Scripture in our mind that we've never read before. He can do that. He's God. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He is talking about that the Spirit is going to bring to your mind things that I have said, what you have heard me say. So for us, the point is, the Spirit brings to our remembrance what we have read that Jesus has said so we study the scripture so the spirit has this incredible important powerful role of bringing the remembrance of the words of jesus in our lives we have in our laps this morning in our hands this morning the most important book that has ever been penned in the history of the world as a matter of fact this book will last for all of eternity The word of the Lord stands forever. So this is what we must immerse ourselves into. And let's get real practical. This should dominate our day, not Facebook. This should dominate our day, not Instagram. This should dominate our day, not news stories. We should be so deeply immersed in this so that when we need to remember something, it's there. And the Spirit can move and work. Peter, who was present on this night, hearing Jesus talk about the role of the Holy Spirit, later would write to a group of scattered believers who had been under persecution. He would write these words in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. He writes, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy, there's never been a prophecy of Scripture, he says, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's, a person's, a human's own interpretation. Watch this. John didn't write, John didn't decide late in the first century, I think I'm going to write something about Jesus. No, the Spirit said, time to write, moved in John, began to, and John began to write down the things from chapter 1 all the way to the end of John's gospel, these things in an orderly way. Watch, every book of the Bible was written this way. From Genesis to Revelation, Peter writes that there has never been 
a prophecy, a written word, a proclamation about God that came in its origin in man from some person's interpretation. Here's what Peter said. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Now listen to this. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So how in the world can we trust this? We can trust this because it didn't come, its origin didn't come from man. It came through the inspiration of the Spirit through men who were eyewitnesses and wrote this down in the leadership of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've studied the Bible for a long time. Many of you have studied the Bible as well. You go to the Old Testament, you can find passages, and in every book of the Old Testament, you know, what it, you know what's contained in every book of the Old Testament? Teaching about the coming of Jesus. You come to the New Testament, you know what the New Testament is about? This revelation of Jesus revealing God in our midst. 66 books written over a long, long time, about 1,500 years. Same theme. No contradictions. Clear revelation. This is about Jesus. And so the Spirit has this great role, Peter says, that no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke as the Spirit carried them along. Move them into what? The truth. And they wrote it down for our benefit. Not only does the Spirit bring to remembrance the actual words, but the Spirit is also at work in bringing to our lives the meaning of the words so that we can understand what is there. So parents, I want to talk to you for a second. And I hope some are listening. Hello, hope you're listening. Listen to this. If this is the most important thing that has ever been written, we must, grandparents, aunts and uncles, we must immerse our kids in this book. So teach them at home. As you learn things, tell the stories as you're driving places, what you're learning. Parents, you also need to do this. Get your kids to church around other people who are teaching this book. Find ways to get your kids and my kids, get them in a place where this book, the most important book, is consistently poured out upon their lives. I almost bought a shirt Labor Day weekend that said this, It's in a store in Fredericksburg, Texas, and it said this, I still have never found a reason to use Algebra 2 in my life. And with my job, totally true. Some of of your kids need to learn Algebra 2 a little bit more than I needed to. So help them learn it. But when this life is over, and we give an account for our lives. He's not going to say, boy, boy, you're great soccer playing. 
Boy, your kid went to yell. And again, great soccer playing is God-glorifying. Going to yell in a, a big academic school is great. But at what cost if they never know the truth of the word that stands and lasts for all of eternity? So parents, your role is to join the Holy Spirit's role to teach and to bring to remembrance the things that Jesus said. Now, are we going to do this perfectly? Absolutely not. But we've got to make the attempt. We've got, we've got to practice this and model this. There's never a Sunday that I stand here that throughout the weekend that I don't ask the Holy Spirit to lead and control this. And sometimes I'm walking back through this on Saturdays and something pops into my head and it's strong and I sometimes wrestle. Like, God, do you really want that to be said? And I have to pray. And, and sometimes I don't, you know, because I, I, I don't hear His voice perfectly and sometimes I'm like, I don't know if it needs to be said. And so I don't say it and sometimes I'll, uh, I'll say it and then sometimes I know that I, I must say it, that it has to be said. But our lives, according to Jesus here, must be guided by the Spirit bringing us into the truth and bringing to our mind the things that we have learned about Jesus. That's why if God ever leads you to leave LifePoint, and it would be a sin to leave LifePoint, but if God did lead you to leave, you better go to a church that proclaims the truth and not man-centered preaching. Do not. Do not place your family at a place where man is the center of the proclamation inside the building. Jesus is the high and lifted one. And he must be the focus. So this first promise that Jesus gives to them before they begin to walk to the Judas kiss is he reminds them that the Spirit will be a teacher in their lives. And here's the one we're going to close with. It's the promise of peace. It's the promise of a peace that only Jesus himself can give us. Look at 27. Notice the verbs. They're two different verbs. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. And following up on the heels of that, he says this, because of this peace that he leaves and can give, and it's not like the world, he says this, don't let your hearts get so upset and caught up. Don't let your hearts be troubled. And don't let them move to a place of being afraid. I want to talk about the New Testament definition of peace. In general, basically, the word peace is a Hebrew word that comes from shalom. And it, and it talks about this and it means that there is a, there's a general well-being that comes to our lives or a contentedness that comes from God 
in His presence in our lives and His work in our lives. And yet there's a couple other places in the New Testament where peace is spoken of that give us a more detailed, defined definition of peace. So these will be up on the screen. These are the New Testament understanding of peace. And the first one is, is that peace is a reconciliation to God from a place of alienation from Him or separation from Him. So watch this. So God is here. There's a gap that's here. We are here. We can't cross over ourselves. We are separated from Him. We are alienated from Him. We live in darkness. We are spiritually dead. God is all life. He is all light. He is the one who makes a way. And in salvation, He makes the bridge through the life of Christ. He makes this bridge so that we can be united with God, justified, made right before Him. In our alienation, He does this work and He brings us into relationship. So that we are no longer alienated from Him, separated from Him. We now have faith. Here's how Paul defined it. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace comes in our lives when we're no longer alienated and separated from Him. Because of our sin. We are brought into peace with Him. Before that, we were at war with God. We were an enemy of God. And now, we are no longer separated. We are united with Him. Here's the second New Testament definition of peace. It's a state of a safe, restful, inner peace that comes to us in the midst of turbulent or troubled circumstances and conditions in our lives. We all know about this. All of us have had really deep moments that we've had to wrestle with, whether it's something with a kid or um, sickness, cancer, whatever the case may be, um, loss of a job and financial instability, boy, it could, it could run the gamut of things. And from the outside, somebody would look at our life and go, gosh, boy, but that life looks, circumstances look chaotic. And yet you talk to someone and, and what do they have? They have a peace. They have a rest and a confidence that, yeah, things are around me troubled, but there's somebody who's sustaining me. There's somebody who is holding me, and that is Christ himself. Paul defined this this way. I love this verse. He's in prison, by the way, in Rome, writing to the church in Philippi, and he writes these words, and the peace of God, which surpasses every bit of human understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So that means that as the war rages, there is a contentedness that we can have, an inner rest, that my circumstances are not good, but my God is absolutely in control. You know what? 
You're supposed to say what? Jesus knew what it was like to have a troubled heart. He knew what it was like to have a troubled heart. Now, he never sinned, but he knew what it was like to be troubled. Let me share you three instances where he himself said he was troubled. Outside of Lazarus' tomb, in John eleven thirty three, 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He's felt that. In the hour before the cross, in John chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said, Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. In John 13, he speaks about Judas's betrayal. In John 13, 21, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Listen, church, as Jesus speaks about a peace that he wants to give us, that is a reconciliation from a place of alienation into a place of relationship, to a place of where in the midst of our circumstances, our hearts can be troubled and yet we can be at peace. Jesus communicates to us, that about this peace, that it's not the kind that means that we will never be troubled in heart. He was troubled in heart. And yet in the troubled of heart, you can be at peace. Jesus was definitely troubled at least three times. We also know from Hebrews 5.8 that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. So he had more trouble in things in his life, but we know of these three specific instances. And what Jesus knew was this, that even in the midst of his troubled heart, what did he have to do? He needed to trust the Father to carry him through, to sustain him. And he knew in the midst of his troubled heart, the heart can trust and the heart can be at peace. And this peaceful rest that can come to you and I comes from a trusting faith that we are in his hands. And that everything can and will be ultimately okay. Note what he says here. He says, my peace. I'm giving you my peace. And I'm going to leave you my peace. So he gifts to us the peace he possessed. The peace that was his. The peace that he won at the cross. Note My peace I am leaving with you. I think that denotes the work of salvation. I'm going to go away. You will be saved. And I'm going to do this great work in your heart. And I will leave this great work. And I will leave this reconciling peace of alienation. It will be gone. You will be in relationship with me. And so not only am I I leaving this work in you, but I'm also going to do this. I am giving you something. And what you will be given is the Father's gift sent in my name, Holy Spirit, who will live inside your life. This pictures, this piece, the work that the Holy Spirit brings to every follower of Christ's life. It becomes this working out of our life, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, Joy, peace, peace. God gives.
his peace to his people. So the peace he he leaves, the peace he gives, can be ours in a saving relationship. Now I want you to listen to the kind of peace this is. Our peace sometimes still can be troubled. Why? Sin gets in the way. Jesus had no sin. And I want you to hear this. He had the kind of peace where he was not in strife with the Father. He was in unison with the Father. And so the kind of peace that he possessed, he says, I'm giving to you and I am leaving with you. I'm giving you the peace that I had while I walked here sinless and I'm giving it to you. Now we're never going to be perfect here. Not a reality. But there can be such a move of God and work of God in our lives that we are on a path to know Him and be sanctified deeper and deeper as the years of our lives come. So the first definition of this peace is a place of alienation and separation to being unified. It also means peace in the midst of circumstances. And then there's a third meaning that's connected to peace. It is an out-of-this-world kind of peace. You can't find it in this world except in Christ. Look what he says. And it's not as the world, not as the world gives do I give you. The peace that the world gives, how could we describe it? Temporary, shallow, shaky, not true, not lasting. The powers of this world talk a good game about peace. We put organizations together to strive for peace. We put documents together so that there will be peace. And what ultimately has man been better at than peace? We have been better at war, at strife about rebellion than we ever have been about peace. Why are right now parts of the world, if we could just flash it up on the screen here and look at country after country after country and to see the chaos in our world today, why is there no peace in the world? Why is there no peace? Why is there so much heavy-handedness Why is there so much heavy-heartedness in our world today? Our world doesn't know how to do peace. Governments don't know how to do peace, and so governments at times get very heavy-handed about things. And sometimes it seems to be a twisted way to, in our world, they're thinking about things, not just government, but other things. And it's a twisted way to to get to peace, but they're trying to get to peace because the heart longs for peace. It doesn't want to be alienated and separated. It, the world wants to know a contentedness. It wants to know a peace that's not of this world. So why, why is it that way? Well, because the world's peace is weak. It cannot stand under pressure. It gives way. And the lack of peace in our world shows that the world's way is not working. Now I want to talk for a moment to Christ followers in the room. I want to remind you and I today that you and I can have peace. That is the promise of Jesus right here. 
that everybody in the room this morning, if we are in a relationship with Christ, we can have peace in the midst of turbulent times, turbulent circumstances in our lives. If we've been brought from this separation, alienation, and been brought into relationship, Jesus says here, he's either a liar or it's true, that he has given his peace, he has left his peace to us. And I believe him that this is an out-of-this-world kind of peace. When the world tries to give peace away, it just doesn't last. But when Jesus gives peace, it can remain. The prophet Isaiah, writing to a broken people that were going to be scattered, wrote these words of God in Isaiah 57, 19. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. But then he describes the wicked. To the, to the believers, he offers his peace. To the near from me that are mine, to the far from me that are mine, you come and I will, I will heal you. I will give you the peace. My peace, I will give it. And then he says this, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. And listen to what God says. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So you look around at our world today, why so much chaos? Because the world has no clue about peace. It's, it's there. There is no peace for the wicked. Why? Because they live in this state. Alienation and separation. In Christ's followers, we are to be of all the people on this planet who ought to know about peace. It should be us. We should have kept our heads in the last 20 months and hopefully we have. I think all this stuff that's there was already there. I think COVID world uncovered it all and it scrambled out and ran a bunch of places. We must be the kind of people who know His peace and it guides our lives. The fourth thing about this peace, Jesus says, He says that there is a certainty of His peace that settles our trouble. So He says at the end of 27 there, Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. As Jesus speaks these words that he said in 14.1, if they had had eyes of faith, he's been telling them that it is good that he goes away and they would have his peace in that moment. But he tells them, listen, you can have my joy. There's a certainty of his peace that will settle our hearts. Let your hearts not be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And so the peace of Jesus can lead to having a heart that maintains its course, that continues to follow God when maybe nobody else does, or maybe there were people that were close with us and they, they've turned their back on the Lord. 
And maybe we're all alone. Maybe you're the only person in your family. And sometimes it's really turbulent, your faith and your perspective and your convictions. But the peace of God can settle our hearts to maintain our course, even if suffering or conflict may come our way. There is an inside calm that at times comes in our lives when the outside may rage. Y'all remember the story? They're in a boat, and Jesus crawls up to the front, and he just lays down, and he goes to sleep. And all of a sudden, on the Sea of Galilee, this big storm comes up, and these experienced fishermen are like, we're about to die. What's Jesus doing? He's asleep. Because he's lazy? No, because he knows that his life is in whose hands? His father's. His life wasn't in the hand of the storm. His life was in the hand of his father. And I want to remind everybody in the room this morning, from myself to everyone, let's remind ourselves of this. Your circumstances are not to have you. There is already one who has you. And his name is King Jesus. And he holds you. And he's got it. He's not been panicked, nor was he surprised over the last 20 months. Nor will he be of the next 20 years. This is incredibly important for us. We need to know this, that he has a peace that sustains us. Turn just for a second, we're almost done, to 1633. Famous words of Christ here. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have what? Tribulation. You're going to have trouble. But I want to tell you, take heart. I have overcome the world. I read an illustration about peace. Two painters were asked to paint paintings picturing peace. First painter went away and began to paint and painted this unbelievable portrait of this lake, trees, beautiful grass, streams up in the mountains. Unbelievable. Just a picture of a peaceful place to be. Second painter came in and they set the painting up on the easel. And it was a picture of a huge raging waterfall, just powerful, coming down, water churning, splashing up, mist going everywhere, wind from the power of the, the waterfall flowing out and moving out. And at the bottom of the waterfall, there was a small tree, and in the branch was a bird's nest with a mother sitting on the bird's nest on top of her eggs. And I asked this morning, which pictures the peace that God gives? And it's the second one. Listen, in this world, you will have trouble. But you take heart. I have overcome the world, and I am giving you, and I am leaving you, my peace. 
my peace, the sinless peace that guided my trust in the Father in every way. You see, Jesus knew his whole time here on earth, and he had raging storms. The Pharisees, there was brokenness all around him, and yet he trusted and was at peace. And his trust brought this incredible, great calm into his life. So I want to close our time and I want to say a word to the student generation here and I want to say a word to adults. Before we do that, I want to, Becca, if you'll put this thing up there, I want you to read that. It's okay to laugh at that. That's a true meme for the younger generation. I don't know, if, I don't know how, much, how much you've talked to the younger generation. Their world is much different than the generation that you and I grew up in. For the most part, for most of us in the room, we grew up in a pretty stable world. 9-11 rocked that. So they've grown up in a turbulent time. And again, this, this, this meme has come out of COVID world. Of, you know, my parents, you know, we're in their 30s. Oh, let's, let's buy a house. Let's have a bunch of kids. And, and uh, somebody I know that's a, in that student generation sent this to me and said, this is kind of what we sometimes think about. We just look around at the world. And our world, since we've been born, has just been chaos. So, I, so adults in the room, you need to be patient with the younger generation. They see, this, they see this world differently than you and I do. And it's okay, by the way, that they do. Now, they must be biblical about it. But they've grown up in a world that's a bit more unstable than the world that you and I grew up in. So I want to speak for a second to the students and kids that are in the room. If we have over the last 20 months or so as adults shown you more fear over faith, I want to apologize. And I want to say to you that we should not have done that. We should have communicated to you in turbulent times that faith rules over fear every single time. Not, not being unwise, but faith is greater than fear. I don't know if you know this, I I love our students. I love being here on Wednesday nights. And, and though I'm getting older, I, I love students. And I want to be around them as much as I can. And I hope you will allow me to be in your life for as long as I can be. But anxiety among this student generation is at an all-time high. Thoughts of suicide, suicide, drug use, on and on it goes. You know what the student generation is looking for right now? Peace. Can I find a place? The problem is the world offers a lot of places to find peace. And it's just more brokenheartedness because that's all the world can offer. So students, I want to say to you today, you can trust God. You can trust Him right now. You can trust Him tomorrow. He's worthy of that trust. And you're not going to find it in a boy or girlfriend. This generation is so confused, they think that if they could change their gender, they would find peace. And all studies show, every study shows, those that have even had gender reassignment surgery, that when they get older, 
You know what they become? Suicidal. Just about every one of them. Why? Because we're not meant to be that. And it didn't bring peace. Students, you are not going to find peace fighting your parents. It's going to be war. It's already war if you're fighting them. It's not going to, you're going to find peace when you trust God's Word to submit while you're under your parents' authority and obey them. God blesses that. As a matter of fact, there's a promise connected to it. It will go well with you in your life. So students, run to Jesus. Every day of your life, run to Him. Immerse yourself in His Word. Adults, I have never lived in my lifetime in the turbulent times in which we are in since we've witnessed in, from March 2020. And what still seems so uncertain around us at times in regard to our culture and all the dramatic changes and the seeming out-of-control chaos of our culture, I want to remind us that every generation of Christ followers over the last 2,000 years have had to live through difficult times. We American Christians and Canadian Christians... We are weak. There are believers all over the planet right now that have had to live through genocide, famine, war, and they've maintained their faith, and they've kept a stability, and they've kept a peace. And it's time for we American Christians, just to be honest, and I'm speaking to me, I'm not speaking to you. We need to grow up and to get biblical, and to trust that in the turbulent times there is a God who has made a way for peace, that He can be trusted. There is, for every generation of Christ followers, they have passed through the valley of the shadow of death to where they eventually can say, and I have great news, there's this great promise, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever because of Him and what He has done. So peace is not going to be found in better government, though we would like that and we should pray for it. Peace is not going to be found in elections, though elections have consequences. Peace is not going to be found in a better economy. Peace is not going to be found in a vaccine. Peace is not going to be found in anywhere else but a person whose name is Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, the Lord of Glory. Peace is a person who is a God who speaks and offers life. And I want, I want a better world. I want lots of better things. I do. And I know you do. We pray for that and we long for that. But what if it never comes? Think of believers in Somalia for generations who've lived under brutal, brutal Christian slaying. Kill Christians when you can do it. And they've continued to maintain their faith. And some of them come to faith knowing what? 
they're likely going to die. So I just, I want to remind students and adults this morning, all of us, me included, that there is a peace that is offered in this world that passes understanding, that will guard our hearts, Paul said, and our minds in one place, in Christ Jesus. So the counsel for all of us, run to Christ, immerse ourselves in the Word, know Him, so that if another chapter of Revelation unveils this week, what do we do? We trust. Guess what the unveiling of Revelation hasn't started yet? The fullness of that, but by the way, okay, I think you get the point. But if it did, guess what the unveiling of Revelation is? The plan of God. His plan. Meaning what? He's in control. He's in control. And what we need more than anything is more, more, more of Jesus. It's what the church needs. It's what all of us need. Let me pray for us.